This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Sean Walker. Sean is The Guardian's correspondent in Central and Eastern Europe. Sean was previously based in Moscow, Russia, for over 10 years reporting from there. He joined me to talk about his forthcoming lecture, The Importance of History, Reflections from a Foreign Correspondent. We also discussed his book, The Long Hangover, Putin's New Russia and the Ghosts of the Past. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. I'm so pleased to have with me in the studio um, the Guardian foreign correspondent. He's now a roving correspondent uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and he has lived for probably, I think it's over a decade in Moscow, in Russia, which is amazing. And um, his name is Sean Walker, and you may actually be familiar with his work from reading it on The Guardian's website. And Sean is in Melbourne to give a lecture at the University of Melbourne, which um, is obviously a fantastic institution who has some really great um, historians in Russian um and other area, other parts of Europe, related parts of Europe. And so they have a great program there. And I think the lecture is actually part of launching the history curriculum. Um, and it's kind of being funded and supported by the Hansen um, bequest. So not bequest, the Hansen um, chair and funding. It's really great to see philanthropy supporting history in universities. And so um, it's great to see that Sean made the trip all the way to Australia, which seems like a a long while, given where he's been from. And Sean is also the author of The Long Hangover, Putin's New Russia and The Ghosts of the Past, which is published by Oxford University Press. So I welcome now Sean, who joins me in the studio. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. And um, I, well, first up, the most obvious question, in by what route did you get here? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I uh, I've had a slightly crazy uh, last week. Uh, so I was in New York uh, for a story, and then I was back in in Budapest, where I now live, uh, for a couple of days, uh, and then I came here uh, via Istanbul and Singapore. Um, so yeah, probably uh, need to plant a, a small rainforest to <laughs> make up for all the travel, but, uh, I've never been to Australia before. So oh, really? I was, uh, super excited to get the invite from University of Melbourne and, uh, uh, yeah, it's really great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here and it is a far way given, even when I went to, um, England, it was like 24 hours on the most direct flight. So it just often feels like Australia is a bit of an effort for some to get here, but it's worthwhile. I think <laughs> once you do, <laughs> once the jet lag wears off, um, Sean, you really have an, quite an interesting and amazing career for someone who studied history in Russian, uh, history. And I think not just Russian history. Well, so I did, um, yeah, I studied history at undergraduate level, so mm. it kind of wasn't specialised, but yeah. I'd always been interested in Russia, so I sort of, you know, played the system so that kind of six out of my seven papers were about Soviet Union and, and 20th century Russia, and then... <laughs> Informal specialisation. Yeah, yeah, and then I think there was one thing I had to do on sort of 12th century England, which I had no, you know, no interest in at all, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, choose it wasn't a huge fan of mine, but yeah, so I, I kind of came to journalism through being interested in Russia. And when, yeah. I, you know, when I graduated, I moved to Moscow and sort of one thing led to another. 
That's so interesting making that transition because I think that maybe nowadays people at university might say, oh, you know, the world's your oyster if you do an arts degree or a history major, you could do anything. And I believe that because I also am a history major. But a lot of people might not make the leap from history to journalist as a foreign correspondent. But in when you look at your book and you see just how interconnected history and Soviet, um, the Soviet Union is to Russia's present day and the things that they grapple with now, as well as having grappled with in the last 20 to 30 years, it's quite obvious almost and it seems like it's such a fantastic synergy. What do you think about your kind of strong historical interest in that area of the world and and then how it's kind of translated into the career that you've got at the moment yeah i mean so i I guess there are two separate things right there's like how how studying history helps just in general with with journalism Mm. uh, and then there's the sort of more russia specific thing so i mean yeah on on the first point um you know i'm not sure how it is in australia but um uh, in in Britain, most people, there's not really like an undergraduate degree in journalism you do. Yeah. Unlike, for example, in Russia, where people were always very surprised if you told them like, oh, I'm a journalist, but, you know, I studied history. I didn't study like five years at the journalism faculty of mm. the university. There um, is, it is a journalism degree in Australia. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. Um, and so obviously, um, you know, obviously there are times, especially when you're getting started, where you think, uh, you know, it would have been really useful to have some training in like libel law or, or, <laughs> or you know, interview technique or whatever. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, the, the, um, a history degree is essentially teaching you how to think, how to mm. sort um, different types of evidence. Um, you know, when you when you look at a lot of these kind of programs to teach people literacy and, and understanding fake news and and looking at kind of how whether or not to trust things you see online, and you kind of think, oh, this is actually isn't that different to when you would be like you know, even in these papers that I didn't enjoy about 12th century England, sort of looking at different sources and saying, well, okay, which one of these, how can we trust this? Who wrote it? What, what kind of uh, ulterior motives might they have had and so on Mm -hmm. and so on. So I think, you know, on the, on this basic level, there's a lot of skills that are useful for journalism and and just kind of useful for everyday life. Um, And then more specifically on Russia and, and also um, in, you know, in this new, um, adjacent region that I now work in of, of the sort of post-communist uh, European countries, you know, many of which are now in the EU, but still share that that common history. Um, and I think across that whole region, and, and particularly in Russia, um, this sense of um, of history being something that's still living and at the same time something that is really open to manipulation um, is really very strong. Um, and, you know, I think there are a number of reasons for that which we, we can get into. Um, but the main one is is clearly that just, you know, the 20th century um in Europe, and particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, um, <laughs> a lot of stuff happened. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff to work through. And of course, you're in a situation where for a number of years, you had um, communist structures where the teaching of history and the studying of history was very prescribed. So suddenly, you end up with all these new countries 
building new national narratives as independent states. And of course, you know, the easiest way to start building a national narrative is to look at the past and to try and pull out some kind of heroic national story. And that's kind of what we see happening in a lot of these places. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of um, Timothy Snyder, who's another historian, fantastic historian. And he only recently gave a lecture to people, I think it was in Poland, about uh, World War Two and how the, that history still impacts and affects the way that Europe is constructing, and I'm talking about Western Europe, is constructing its identity and the way that it interacts with each other and views itself. And it was such a kind of almost obvious point, but it was really saliently put. And um, I think he was using it or utilising it in the sense of Brexit and this idea of needing to actually be, you know, united and what was the point of World War Two and what did come out of that horrible moment. And yeah, that we're not all kind of constructed out of war necessarily, but it was just such an excellent pertinent speech. Mm. And it seemed like it was the thing that we everyone needed to talk about instead of what Boris Johnson was doing <laughs> at the time like that probably would have been more constructive to the debate if the BBC had like broadcast his speech <laughs> yeah. instead of whatever was happening in UK parliament what are your thoughts on that cuz i know that your book has certainly focused on this idea of the pertinence of world war 2 to russia and russian identity post the soviet union yeah, I mean, so so my kind of the central argument in the book, I guess, was that that uh, Vladimir Putin in in Russia has used uh, the Soviet victory in the Second World War as, if you like, the kind of founding myth of of the modern Russia. The 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 almost like a se- it, it, you know it develops gradually over the twenty years he's in charge, but by now it's kind of become almost like a religion in Russia. So you know you have your saints, you have your um, sacred texts. You can't question any of it. Um, and you know on on the one hand um, that's very understandable because the, you know the Soviet. Uh, war losses were immense. There was enormous sacrifice. It, it was uh, the most cataclysmic event of the 20th century. Uh, on the other hand, it comes alongside all kinds of problems to do with, you know, what happens after the war when Ukraine, Central Europe, to do with uh, the, the fact that, you know, the, the regime that wins the war is the Stalin regime. So, are you going to lionize this regime? What are you going to say about all the people who were killed in the years running up to the war? What are you going to say about the kind of tactics that seemed to um, have, you know, contempt in a lot of cases for human life? What are you going to say about the Nazi-Soviet pact for the first two years of the war? Um, and so, and these become when you turn the war into. Um, such a big part of your modern day identity, these don't just become historical questions. I mean, in terms of the the Nazi-Soviet pact, we've seen that in the last few weeks as we got to the sort of the 80th anniversary of the start of the war um, become a a really angry, aggressive spat um, in Mm -hmm. contemporary politics. Um, So... You know, I think it, it, it's 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 a really interesting and and kind of useful thing to look at how this memory is used. And I mean, just to come back to to Britain and Brexit. I mean, yeah. I, so I wrote this book about Russia, um, uh, but certainly in in a lot of the conversations about Brexit, um, 
you know, I've, I go home and I wonder if, you know, there's another book to be written about about the war memory in Britain because, you know, we start hearing... And, and, and of course, it's very different. Um, it's a very different history to, to the, the Soviet history, but, uh, you know, it's still very strange to hear people kind of pulling out this... Um, these kind of tropes about well we you know my grandfather fought the Germans so we I'm I'm not going to let a German tell me what to do with Brexit and what you hear from some of these Tory yes. MPs you know I was in fact when I came back to the UK to to give a book lecture um, and you know I had this lecture about how in Russia everybody is obsessed with the war and that people keep talking about the war and I got off the train mm. at Oxford Station and the first you know, I saw this massive advert saying Britain's greatest victories, and there was a big sort of book in the in the bookshop on sale about the Second World War. And I thought, actually, you know, there is clearly um, there are some comparisons, and 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 again, like in the Russian case, I mean, there nobody's suggesting like we should forget all about the war or that this is not something to be proud of or that we shouldn't remember the people that fought. But I think we have to think quite carefully about uh, how we use these memories mm. and you know just finally to go back to that the, the, the so i was in poland on on the 1st of september um in warsaw where they were having the kind of um the ceremony uh for the 80th uh, anniversary and you know everybody was saying you know we must draw lessons from the second world war which is a you know fairly obvious and sensible thing to say but of course everybody there had a very different lesson. Yeah. Uh, so the Poles, the, the Polish lesson was never trust Russia. The Russian lesson was, you know, we defeated the Nazis and you should be grateful to us. Um, you know, God knows what Donald Trump or Mike Pence's <laughs> lesson was from <laughs> it. Um, but, you know, it's very easy to say these things like we should learn from history. Yeah. But then when you get to sort of, well, okay, well, what lessons should we learn? Then it seems that everybody has different lessons. Yes, that's so true. Um, one of the messages that Snyder repeated over and over was that you are more than your myths and your national myths and that was quite powerful from a historical perspective and seems to be quite you know the point of what you're saying as well is that we do kind of construct myths out of a fact or a, a basis a historical basis but they evolve into something that has a another life or another purpose and a different function and they can sometimes become quite distorted depending on the political environment that they find themselves in and the motivations of the time. I think a lot of people at the moment or at least certainly myself but others I've heard of would look at Russia as, as it stands today under Vladimir Putin and not really understand the political kind of culture that exists in Russia and how it exists that way and why perhaps Russians might be um, positively disposed to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and, I mean, the, the main imagery that we probably get is quite ridiculous. And I think, you know, lots of people would think of him riding, you know, bare-chested on horseback and, like, his... the Are kind you saying of, you don't like that? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, it definitely... It really didn't do anything for me. <laughs> but, you know, it, each to their own. It may have worked for some other people. Um, but, yeah, I think some people would go, well, what is the, like, allure? And obviously not everyone in Russia is going to be behind Vladimir Putin but what to your understanding having lived there for so long and understanding the people and knowing what makes them tick what do you think is the kind of allure that 
is Vladimir Putin and is there any kind of um, mythologizing even around him as a figure? Wow. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, uh, I'll try to give you the sort of, yeah, I'll try to give you the answer that doesn't take three hours. Um, I mean, I think it changes over time. So, you know, when when Putin comes in, first of all, in, in, you know, pretty much exactly 20 years ago, he's made prime minister and then he becomes president on the, on the eve of the millennium. And I mean, at this point, I think it's not difficult to see what people um, like in Putin. You know, it's only 10 years, less than 10 years since the Soviet Union has collapsed. Uh, Russia's been through this really difficult decade mm-hmm. where, lot, you know, it was economic disaster. The, the sort of excitement about democracy and changes was subsumed by the fact that, you know, it turned out that the Democrats seemed to be just as cynical as the communists, that a certain few people made all the money, everybody else was in poverty. And along comes this guy and says, you know, I will return your dignity. Um, we're going to make Russia great again, essentially. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's exactly what he says just before he comes to power. He says he wants to make Russia a first tier nation because for the first time in a couple of hundred years, it it, it risks not becoming becoming a second or a third tier nation, as he puts it. So uh, I think this figure is quite attractive um, at, at that time, and, and, and he gets a lot of support. Uh, and then obviously over the years, um, Putin cements his power, the, all kinds of opposition to him are, are kind of closed down, he takes control of the media. Um, and so, you know, just fast forwarding to the situation you have today, uh, where indeed, you know, people often find it confusing. Well, how can he have, after 20 years with, uh, you know, how can he still have these quite high approval ratings? Mm. And I think there are a few reasons. Um, you know, for a long time, he kind of had a deal with the Russian, an informal deal with the Russian people that you're going to get richer and things are going to get better. Uh, and, you know, you just don't uh, you know, leave the politics to me kind of thing. Uh, and and because of the high oil prices, um, things did get better. And you know, for, there's still a lot of poverty in Russia. But even in the smaller towns and cities, you go there, and it's noticeably a more pleasant place to live than it was ten years ago. Um, obviously, with time, that becomes not enough. The economy slows down. Um, more and more people have started to travel due, due to this um, kind of economic well-being. So more people see how things are in other places. They, those people come back. They want changes. Um, and we have seen various waves of, of protests, um, both uh, the sort of non-political kind of angry economic protests and the sort of urban middle class who want things to be better. And I mean, the way I always look at it is you look at a approval rating for Putin, which is may vary between 60 to 80 percent. And you think, wow, so 80 percent of Russians love Vladimir Putin after 20 years. And it's it's kind of a bit different to that. So, you know, you have you do have a small group of people who absolutely love Putin, think he's fantastic, would be ready to go out and, and demonstrate for him. And then you have a small group of people who despise Putin and are ready to go and take part in opposition protests and, if necessary, go to jail. And then you have this big mass of people in the middle, which is, you know, unscientifically, I'm going to say it's 70 or 80 percent of people mm. who are pretty disappointed in politics. They're pretty apolitical. If you say to them, do you support Putin? They'll say yes. So, you know, you tick them, put them in the, the box of Putin supporters. But if you dig down into that support a bit more, well, you know, why do you support Putin? Then 
the answer will inevitably be, oh, there's no one else, or oh, it would be worse, or oh, we remember the 90s when there was chaos. So kind of Putin's genius has been to create this situation where he is the only alternative, uh, where, you know, their, their messaging is it's either me or revolution and you know how badly that ends. And, you know, and to create a situation where they may well be right because they have got rid of, as soon as anybody pops up with any kind of potential looking support as an opposition leader, they get banned from the airwaves, they might get sent to prison, you know, maybe even worse. Um, and so you kind of create this situation where uh, it becomes... If people say, well, look, okay, what's the point? If demonstrating is not going to change anything, my life is reasonably okay. Um, so, yeah, fine. Better to have Putin in place than, than not. And so, you know, that that is slowly becoming more and more fragile. I mean, the summer we had quite mm-hmm. big protests in Moscow. Um, and at some point, you know, at some point that's not going to be enough. Uh, and we're going to get to a situation where either... Uh, the Kremlin needs to offer real compromise, which I don't know if it's capable of doing anymore, or it needs to go down the route of full-blown repression because this sort of gentle repression and, and, and you know, occasionally putting someone in prison or mm. occasionally arresting someone, that's not going to be enough anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, in terms of the Soviet era and what you're referring to as I guess the aftermath which was not only economic shock but also like an identity crisis uh, which is not surprising given that it really it was broken up into was it 15 different countries after that point and I mean yeah it seems like there's a fragmenting at least geographically how did um, people in Russia deal with that vacuum the initial vacuum that kind of existed and this like really quick sweeping away of what was a soviet identity what was the like post-soviet pre-putin identity and how has that survived at all in current day any parts of it well i think you know i think that that goes back to the point of of why Putin was popular when he came along because he was kind of offering some kind of an identity whereas mm-hmm. for that first decade um you know there there really wasn't a sense uh, uh, you know I think there's there's even a, a quote in the book that that one of the uh, Yeltsin era spin doctors said to me which is that you know we had to work out what Russia was because nobody mm-hmm. knew uh you know different people had different ideas was it supposed to be were they were we supposed to say okay you know the soviet period was an 80 year mistake we're going to go back to czarist russia and and was it was it was it meant to be okay we're going to become an orthodox christian country and we're going to base our our identity on religion yeah. was it we're going to become you know the new america and we're going to be just an ordinary european country and one day we'll join the eu uh, was it you know we are this we've always had this kind of unknowable Russian soul and we will be this big bridge between um, Europe and the West and Asia and the East. So different people had all these ideas about what the new Russia could be, um, but then would look out of their windows and see this rather kind of depressing reality where all the high talk about democracy and about progress and about living like the West turned out to sort of not be as easy as people thought. Um, you know, so you get the situation where Western democracy is 
um, sort of equated with essentially a few crooks running off with all all the money. Um, and then Putin comes along and says, OK, look, you know, I can give you back your dignity. This is going to be, you know, Russia is going to be, again, to, to, to paraphrase, great again, and, and actually leaves the specifics of that quite vague. So, mm. you know, it's not that he comes along and says, we must all be Orthodox Christians, or that he comes along and says, um, you know, the, the czar was brilliant, or I want to resurrect the Soviet Union. And he's actually very care. You know, there's this mistake that people think that Putin wants to kind of is a big fan of the Soviet Union, and he wants to recreate it. He's very ambiguous because he knows that some Russians miss the Soviet Union and some Russians are delighted that it has gone. So instead, what he says is he kind of lets you draw your own picture of of the country you want to live in. But he tells you that it will be great. It will be powerful. There will be dignity. It will be, as he calls it, a first tier nation. And he picks out the Second World War as the the kind of the one thing if you look at this difficult century of russian history where you know okay 1917 russian revolution for some russians who were sort of more pro soviet that's still something to celebrate for other russians it's a tragedy the same with 1991 you know for some russians they would say well thank god we got rid of the soviet system even if it was difficult for other russians they would say what a disaster, life was ruined, and everything we sort of believed to be true fell apart. So you, you have all these difficult events that divide people, and then you have the war victory, which is difficult for its own reasons, but more than any other event um, kind of brings people together. And I think that's how almost at the beginning, organically, um, you know, it, it, I think initially it wasn't a cunning political ploy, but slowly, it, it, when when he saw how effective it was, it became that. Mm. Um, but you know, the, the, you you get this kind of idea of a new Russia that's built um, around respect, around authority, and and then at the centre of it, this almost kind of martyr-like story of you know we we had all these losses to have this great victory for the rest of the world and the rest of the world needs to respect us for that. Yeah. Yeah. And you write in your book that it is called, um, and the terminology is still used, which is it's um, in English, the Great Patriotic War, which is interesting. I mean, we call World War One the Great War. Right. Um, and just like World War Two, World War II. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, that kind of terminology is used. How do Russians remember World War Two or the Great Patriotic War? And what elements do they pick out as being emblematic or highlighting their greatness and I mean obviously the most obvious one is their contribution to winning the war and defeating Nazi Germany which is important but within that war are there kind of moments that uh, Russia might highlight or pick out as being important and are they kind of um, I guess from a historian perspective actually accurate? Well, I mean, so on the one hand, uh, so on the one hand, quite a lot of the time when Russians get angry that in the West and particularly in America, people don't appreciate the Soviet war effort. Mm. I mean, they have a point, you know, yeah. all, most of the major battles were on the Eastern Front. And, you know, sometimes if you look at kind of Hollywood war movies or if you talk to um, kind of ordinary Americans about the war, you would get the impression that this was a sort of war won by the Americans with a little bit of help from a few European allies. Um, and to be honest, the same the same in Britain to some yeah. extent. 
Um, so, you know, yes, when you look at the numbers, when you look at the way the war went, um, it's clear that, that the, the Eastern Front was huge and that the Soviet um, sacrifice and um, contribution to the war victory kind of dwarfs anyone else's. Um, at the same time, you know, this was a gruesome, horrific war with Stalin in charge with these two years at the beginning where the Soviet Union was allied to Nazi Germany with, uh, you know, all kinds of difficult elements. In the middle. I mean, you know, during the war, the Soviet Union deports two million of its own citizens in kind of train carriages to the Central Asian steppe, the, the entire Chechen nation and a bunch of other nations, which, of course, you know, leads to various things later on, particularly in the case of Chechnya. Mm. Um, so if you so if you kind of erase all of that memory and you don't talk about any of that stuff and you just talk about the glorious victory that's one problem and the second thing i would say is that it, it you know when you and and this is not just actually to do with russia but this is to do with memory of the war across europe which is that you know so we, we've just had the 80th anniversary and for me that it seems that that's a kind of perfect amount of time for a kind of mythologizing uh, approach to history because 80 years means that you know everybody has a parent or maybe a grandparent who was involved in the war everybody can feel this you know it's not like talking about the Crimean war or something it's something that st people still feel this connection to mm. but at the same time it's long enough ago that almost everybody who actually remembers what it was like um, has has died off with a few exceptions so what you've seen in Russia and I think probably in some other countries too is that over time this uh, you know when you read when you read stories about how victory day was marked in the 70s or 80s even though it was a sort of big pompous soviet holiday it was much more about spending time with veterans it was much more a sad day visiting gravestones thinking about it the, you know the veterans themselves often didn't want to talk about the awful things they'd seen during the war and then slowly over the years that kind of horror gets taken out of it and it morphs into more of a kind of we won the war, we can do it again. You know, you don't you don't recognize that we 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 kind of made this incredible achievement. And, it, you know, and, and if necessary, we'll do it again. And that's kind of what we see in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the war that starts in eastern Ukraine. Um, the symbol of that war in eastern Ukraine for on the Russian side was uh, these orange and black um ribbons which the Kremlin had used as Second World War memory so it's almost you know bringing that memory of the previous war into this new war mm. uh, and that to me was the sort of culmination of of this war rhetoric um, where suddenly we've got a new war on our hands and people are talking about it as if it's a continuation of the old war. Well that's really interesting from an outsider perspective because <laughs> I would never have linked those two well, given that you've just mentioned um, Eastern Ukraine, I think it came into prominence from our perspective when we saw um, the passenger plane get shot down over Ukraine and a lot of Australians were just kind of shocked at what had happened and obviously affected a number of people across the world. But that's just a small kind of moment in what has become, you know, a very controversial action on the part of Russia um, against the Ukraine. Where, why did Russia decide to, to take the action it did in the Ukraine and where are we at now? 
Hmm. Uh, another another <laughs> nice easy question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot. You know, when you look at uh, why Russia, um, you know, first of all annexed Crimea and then got involved in um, in, in the conflict in the east, and uh, you know, probably started it off as well. Um, you know, I think there are there are a bunch of of different complicated reasons, starting from, uh, you know, Putin's desire not to see Ukraine in NATO, the feeling that Crimea was strategically important, um, and and this kind of, you know, this decision that again about this this whole concept of a first tier nation of not being a country that gets pushed around. You know, Putin had said. Uh, he wasn't going to accept Ukraine signing this agreement and he showed that he meant it. Mm. Uh, so that's that's one part of it. Um, there, are some, there are plenty of other reasons. And then there's also, uh, I mean, there's also this historical clash, um, which clearly isn't the sort of main geopolitical reason, but it plays a huge role in the way people think about this, both in Russia and in Ukraine, which is sort of going through its own difficult sense of, of, of kind of what kind of country is it? What should it what should it be based on? Second World War again plays a big role, you know, in the Maidan revolution, which is what kind of spooked Putin and, and, and got him involved in the first place. You know, one of the main symbols that we saw was Stepan Bandera, who was the this kind of um, a, a Ukrainian nationalist leader in the Second World War who for part of the war was allied with the Nazis. Um, so you have this, I mean, it's way too complicated to get into now, <laughs> but you, you kind of have this historical overlay mm. where um, both sides are talking about history. And it's almost like, you know, the competing views of history in, in somewhere like Crimea were, were really very much on display. When you had the referendum in Crimea, there were these big signs everywhere that on one side, you had a sort of Ukrainian Crimea with a big swastika on it. And on the other side, you had a free uh, orange and black, we won the Second World War Crimea. Um, and so, you know, these, th- these, these were not things that were in the back of people's mind that they'd once studied at school. These were things that were really, you know, people almost talked about the Second World War and history more than they talked about any present day concerns. We don't want to be in a country where they don't respect the Second World War victory and so on. So all of this stuff um, comes together. Just in in terms of eastern Ukraine, shooting down the plane um, and so on. uh, I mean, then... That I think that is a result of sort of events just spiraling a mm. bit out of control. I mean, it was clear that Putin took the decision to annex Crimea. He wanted to do that. I think what we ended up with in eastern Ukraine was kind of one of those situations where they the Kremlin bit off a bit more than it could chew. Suddenly they've got this territory with all these crazy rebels wandering around. They can't, you know, they've 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 already signed up to support it, but they can't fully invade because that's you know, that's really going to be the end of any cooperation with the West. So you get this weird situation where they're pretending they're not involved, but they're sending stuff across the border. Mm. Um, and that's unfortunately how you end up with kind of tragic stuff happening, like, um, you know, idiots trying to shoot, thinking they're shooting down a Ukrainian plane and shooting down a passenger jet. Yeah, yeah, because obviously 
as you're saying, it wasn't necessarily formally a Russian army, you know, just kind of heading into the Ukraine. It's like, as you've said in the book, these separatists who have a past history with Soviet Russia and understanding um, and also, an, I guess, a tied identity to war in, in various forms. And, um, yeah, I found it really interesting the first uh, or the introduction, I guess, where you were talking about this man called the Romanian because he sounds crazy in a really funny but great way, like and quite extreme. Um, but he's, I mean, I can understand why someone who's had all those experiences gets to a point where that's how they see the world and how he is acting and how he's kind of taking up the mantle for Russia in the Ukraine. Like, what were your thoughts on meeting people like that in the Ukraine who are kind of part of that conflict yeah i mean so you know clearly these were people that were um you know doing unpleasant and illegal things um and and causing all kinds of of problems um, and heartache for people but at the same uh, at the same time and yes there, there were elements of what they had been through in their lives and what they had seen that if you certainly wouldn't sympathize them necessarily with mm. them necessarily but you'd understand where they came from um and you know there were a lot of these men who were between 40 and 50 who'd been often young men when the soviet union collapsed um in the case of the the, the guy you're mentioning and, and one or two others <clears throat> they may have even fought for the soviet army some of them had fought in afghanistan um and you know as, as somebody said to me about uh, about this guy who was called the demon who was one of the most terrifying of them all um you know he he used to serve one this country and then the country that he served collapsed and not everybody can handle that psychologically um so you know yeah in 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 on the rebel side in that war you had this combination of, of of angry locals, mm. of people like that who were Russians or in some cases locals, often Russians who were sort of still getting over the collapse of the Soviet Union and decided they were going to come and fight for whatever. Some of them were fighting to, you know, because they were pro-Soviet, some of them were pro-Tsarist. It was the most confusing mix of, of, of different ideologies. And then you did have the element of the the kind of Russian army that was sent in mm. on on particular occasions, um, you know, they're still denying it, but it was very very clear that at times, um, the, you know, the regular Russian army was there, and I think it's it's pretty clear at this point that the um, Buk missile system that shot down the the Malaysian plane was was a regular Russian army um, missile system. So, yeah, it was it was a it was a kind of confused mess, and because they were denying it, because they couldn't say, okay, we're like with Crimea, basically that yes, okay, we're doing this, this we're going in. Uh, you, the, the situation on the ground was was a real mess, and 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 led to all these kind of tragedies happening. Mm. It, it's so complex, as you've already demonstrated, and we won't get into the nitty gritty of it. But I really appreciate you explaining it for us in what is yeah a difficult situation. Sean, to finish this conversation, which has been absolutely fascinating from my perspective, so thank you for enlightening myself and I'm sure many others to what's going on over there. Um, but in terms of current day events and issues that have that have made the mainstream news over here, um, climate change is such a massive issue, and we've seen Greta Thunberg be, you know, a big poster 
person for for that movement and um, it has kind of picked up steam in a lot of countries around the world when we saw those global climate strikes. But I wonder in Russia um, and even Central and Eastern Europe whether climate change is felt as urgently and um, particularly I'm thinking of Russia and global warming and the the kind of changes that might be occurring over there which would be potentially significant to um, the the lifestyle of Russians or even the ability to grow certain foods depending on the climate um, and also of course what has sparked my attention was the um, rapidly melting permafrost which seems to be a rather scary prospect um, in your mind, when you've been living over there for such a long period, how has um, climate change featured or not um, over in Russia? Uh, I think it certainly uh, hasn't been um, as much of an issue as it is in in Western Europe or perhaps here in Australia. You know, I think it's, it's one of these things that perhaps... Um, you know, perhaps people start to think about more when... Uh, the kind of more everyday concerns about the economy and so on are, are less um, pressing. So I think in Russia, you've had this this kind of two parts to it. One is that, um, uh, that, that yeah, people have felt they've, they've just got other things to worry about, rightly or wrongly. And secondly, that the government has not made it, you know, we, it's not something that's featured on state TV, which is where most people get their news from. It's not really something that is kind of talked about. And if it is talked about, it's often in this kind of jokey way of like, oh, global warming, brilliant, you know, we'll be able to kind of go to the beach in Siberia or whatever. Um, I think when you talk to scientists about it, um, I guess there's probably for Russia, um, there are some positives and some negatives with with global warming so one you know one thing that they're talking about a lot is the um increased ability to use the northern sea route which is basically going along the arctic coast of um uh, north of siberia um so you know to get a ship from europe to for example korea via that route um is actually you know weeks quicker than, than taking it all the way around Suez Canal mm. uh, and so on. And, and until recently, you've only been able to do that route with the nuclear-powered icebreaker at particular times of year, and gradually it's becoming more and more open. So there's a sense, you know, that, that they feel perhaps at some point this could become this kind of major shipping route. On the other hand, you know, as you mentioned, permafrost... Um, you know, because the, the Soviets had this habit of of building kind of major cities in places where, you know, if you look at the equivalent in, for example, Canada, you might have a mining town where, you know, people just fly in, do their work and fly out. Um, Soviets decided to build like proper cities, the places like Yakutsk, um, Murmansk, Magadan, that are really far north, that are built on permafrost. Um, and, you know, the, so basically they... The, they're built by putting these kind of long stilts into the ground. If the permafrost melts, the foundations kind of um, become unstable and essentially whole settlements can find that they're kind of falling apart, basically. So, you know, we're not talking about the whole of Russia, but there are a number of cities where certainly the, the talk of global warming is, is something that is not just a, a thing in the back of their minds, but something that could completely affect 
um, um, and, and the way of life. But I think it, it hasn't yet become something that kind of permeates um, people's consciousness. I think, you know, the, the reaction to someone like uh, Greta Thunberg has been more likely to be sort of patronizing laughter rather than, oh gosh, this is a wake up call. Mm. Um, and, and it doesn't yet feel like it's kind of penetrated into the kind of mainstream debate. Mm, that's really interesting to hear. Um, just finally, Sean, on a personal note, you're a foreign correspondent and you've been doing it for quite a while and probably more than a number of others. How? What kind of lifestyle is it to work as a – well, I mean, working as a journalist is quite demanding. It doesn't matter what kind of role you have. But as a foreign correspondent living in a whole range of areas in Europe, kind of what does that mean for you personally and how – I guess why have why have you been doing it for so long like what keeps you going <laughs> well for me I think it's changed a lot in the last couple of years because I was in Russia for such a long time and and you know I speak Russian and I was in, kind of felt very immersed in, in Russia and the story um, and now I've moved to a situation where um, you know I'm based in Budapest but I travel all the time to various different countries usually I don't speak the languages in the countries I don't have that kind of deep cultural and historical background um, and so you end up you know perhaps on the one hand you have a little bit more of a um, an outsider's perspective and you can see things more clearly that maybe when you're in the middle of something you don't quite notice Obviously, on the other hand, you just have less knowledge and, and, and less insight in a lot of ways. Um, I think in, in terms of the kind of the, the life of the foreign correspondent, I think it's changed a lot um, in the last maybe 20 years with partly due to what's happening with um, budgets and so on in media that, you know, when I started um, kind of 15 years ago, in Moscow, most of the correspondents for major newspapers would, you know, it would tend to be the sort of middle-aged white guy who gets sent out for, you know, like a diplomat, you do three years in Moscow, then you do three years in Washington, then you do three years in Delhi, um, and you almost kind of have this, you know, sort of 19th century anthropologist approach of like writing about the natives and, and bringing bringing this picture back to, to, to your readers at home. And I think partly because there is a demand for new voices and partly just because it's cheaper and, and, and newspapers don't have the budgets anymore. That's changed a lot now so that it, someone like me who had gone out to Russia um, and was interested in Russia and was sort of freelancing or working. My first job was for, for an NGO there. Um, there's more willingness to kind of hire someone like that. Um, and now if I look at the sort of people who are Moscow correspondents for um, the American or British papers, many of them are people with a Russia background. Some of them are even, you know, Russians whose parents emigrated and then they came back to Russia. Um, and you have much fewer um, people who are doing essentially what I'm now doing in Central Europe, where you're, you're a sort of career journalist and you arrive and you don't have that background in the region um, and, and you sort of uh, you start from scratch. So I think as I said, I think you know there are there are positives and negatives to both approaches, but I think overall it's definitely positive that you know people who uh, people are kind of more specialised in an area and and uh, perhaps more engaged, and that you know when you're a journalist based somewhere like Moscow, you're in in a way as your your whole life becomes part of your job. Which if you enjoy your job, that's great because you know every time you go to the theatre. You could, you could be seeing something that could turn into a story every time you go for dinner with your Russian friends, every time you walk out on the street and, and sort of 
just look at what's happening around you. Mm. Um, essentially, you sort of immerse yourself in this world and, and everything becomes kind of a potentially a story or something that you're interested in, um, which is both fantastic and really tiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be so interesting, though, because every day would be different, wouldn't it? It is. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm in a way it's I mean, yeah, you get paid to talk to really interesting people about that. And, you know, whereas if you're if I was in London, you would probably have a beat where you cover the courts or you cover culture or you cover a particular thing. Mm. Um, as a foreign correspondent, you do get this really quite broad range. So, you know, you can be talking to an oligarch one day and a kind of minor the next day and a, a ballet director the next day. Um, and yeah, it just, I mean, absolute privilege really yeah, to, to talk is. to all those people. Yeah, the access is amazing. Yeah. And also, obviously, you're providing an important way in for people who aren't connected to that area of the world through the Guardian's website and the writing that you're doing. Hopefully. Yeah. That's the idea. Cross yeah. fingers. No, I'm yeah. sure you do. <laughs> um, so people can head along to your lecture tomorrow night. Uh, it starts at 6.45 and it's called The Importance of History, Reflections from a Foreign Correspondent. And I'm sure it will be fantastic. And as I said, the lecture is part of the launch of the new history curriculum at the university, which has been made possible by the Hanson Trust. Um, and also, obviously, you could check out Sean's book, which we've been referencing throughout this discussion, which is The Long Hangover. And uh, thank you so much, Sean, for coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. And it's just been absolutely wonderful. Thanks for having me. It's been great to have you. I've been speaking with Sean Walker, who is a Guardian correspondent for Central and Eastern Europe and uh, previously for Russia and was based in Moscow for over 10 years. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.